Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Elizabeth Samet, professor of literature at West Point. She has a new book out, The Annotated Personal Memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. And today's discussion will largely be about this incredible work. Grant's life is a compelling narrative with significant highs and lows. He goes from being a destitute shopkeeper in his father's leather goods store to being the commanding general of a Union army during the Civil War, and he leads that army to victory in a brilliant campaign. Elizabeth Samet is an excellent storyteller, and as we learn about Grant, we will be drawing out leadership lessons and life lessons we can apply to our own lives. I do have a quick disclaimer. The views Elizabeth Samet expresses do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. This episode is full of incredible stories and fun lessons. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Elizabeth. As much as I did, my friends, I bring you Elizabeth Samet. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Elizabeth Samet, welcome back to The Good Life. Thank you so much, Sean. It's a great pleasure to be back. Well, you were a guest on episode number five to discuss an anthology you edited titled Leadership, Essential Writings from Our Greatest Thinkers. And one of those writers was Ulysses S. Grant, and he's the subject of today's conversation. Now, I thought I'd start with just a general idea of the grand scope of, of Grant's life, who Ulysses S. Grant was, you know, for the benefit of those in my audience who may be from outside the United States, and just a little bit about his accomplishments and why he's still of interest today. Well, when he died in 1885, he was probably the most famous American in the world. And he had eclipsed, I think, even Lincoln, really. And that fame was based on his performance in the Civil War, ultimately rising to become the commanding general of the Union Army, the leader of the victorious Federal Army in the Civil War, receiving General Lee's surrender at Appomattox in 1865, went on then to command the Army during the beginnings of Reconstruction after the war, and then to serve as president for two terms. In fact, he won the first time without ever having made a campaign speech. Such was his fame, such was his celebrity that he was elected on this wave of popularity. Those two terms in office had some really important moments, including the sustaining of Reconstruction, particularly during the first term. They were also, as it happens, ridden by some scandal and really, by the end, had lost credibility in many ways. When he left office after that second term, it coincided with the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of what we often call the, the Jim Crow South. So the return of really repressive measures against African-Americans. And then Grant went on, he did a world tour, traveled all the way to the Far East, and then ended his life in New York City. In the last few years of his life, he was bankrupt. And the book that we're going to talk about today is actually the product of that. In the uh, 1880s, he first suffered a fall on an icy New York City sidewalk, 
went bankrupt and then discovered he had inoperable cancer. So it was this series of catastrophes. And he ended up working a deal with Mark Twain, who sold the book by subscription and ended up leaving his family financially secure. The book was sold, it's sort of a model later for sales in the sense that this army of salesmen, a lot of them were veterans actually of the Civil War, and they went across the country and sold thousands and thousands of copies of this and earned you know, over half a million dollars, which of course today would be a great deal more for Julia, his widow. And then the reason that some of your listeners might not know about Grant now is that his reputation really sort of fell precipitously and was eclipsed by Lee. And there's a whole complicated story of the way we remember the Civil War, which of course is in the news today with the discussion of Confederate monuments and taking them down. So Grant was a kind of casualty of the way we ended up remembering the war and sort of thinking about the Southern lost cause version of the war rather than the one Grant championed at his death. His book, Personal Memoirs, which is the subject of our conversation today, you recently released an annotated version of his memoirs, which you edited. And it's a wonderful read. What I like about the book is along the way, you have all kinds of footnotes and graphics and images to provide context to Grant's story. And it's helpful because Grant was writing to an audience that really understood, had lived through the Civil War, understood and was familiar with the generals and with the people in his staff and the characters that come up in his memoirs. And the audience today may not be familiar. So you introduce each character, but also provide all kinds of maps and references to modern culture, to Shakespeare, and to other writers. So it really makes the reading of Grant's personal memoirs really much more entertaining. So I, I really want to applaud you on that. And it's a fabulous book, one that I had not read until just recently. I have to say, I, I hope listeners take up the challenge to read. It's a little bit long, but it's definitely worth the investment. Grant's life is just an amazing story, kind of growing up in a, I'd say, sort of a middle-class family and rising to being the commanding general of the army to the presidency. But along the way, he suffered a lot of setbacks. It wasn't a straight road. So as we go through his life, I was hoping we can pull out some lessons. You know, what can we learn from Grant that we can apply to our own lives to live a better life, to be better leaders in our communities, to make society a better place like he did. Maybe we could start with his childhood. He's born in Ohio in 1822. His father is a tanner, and he did reasonably well at that job. It was a trade that was hard, that was extremely unpleasant. You can only imagine the smells. I write a little bit about this. It was brutal work. And Grant hated it, absolutely hated it, didn't want to work in the tannery. But he found that he had a natural aptitude for animals, for horses in particular. And so he would do anything around the house that had to do with horses. So he would always manage them. And it gave him a kind of independence at a very young age that I don't think he would have had necessarily. So because he was such a good manager of horses, his father used to let him go roam really far distances, sometimes with a wagon where he would carry passengers or goods or things like that. And he found himself traveling around. And one of the things that he mentions early on in the memoirs is that he develops at that period a superstition, that if he gets lost, 
he never wanted to return the way he had come, but he would find some other way to get back. And what that did, I think, was to give him a real feel for terrain and direction and the nuances of the landscape. And that ended up for him being key. It was one of the things that all of his staff officers knew about him and that everybody suggested his success as a battlefield commander owned a great deal to this. So he could look at a map briefly and understand intuitively the whole terrain, the whole battle space. And he would travel by horseback because he was such a good equestrian. He could travel the sort of, you know, at that time, battles were getting unwieldy in terms of their size and the length of the line. But a good horseman could effectively travel the whole line and see the whole battlefield. And Grant would do that, often under fire, much to the chagrin of his staff officers who had to follow him around. But he had this just intuitive grasp of terrain and how he would attack a certain objective. I love that story, too. It really stood out when I was reading his memoirs. And the other thing I took away from that story, in addition to his command of geography, which is just incredible, because as he's talking about these battles or writing about the battles, what, 20 years sometimes after they were fought, he seems to still have such a great command of what was going on in the land. I'm sure he had some notes to work from, but it's quite amazing. But the other thing I took away was just this idea that he pushes forward right? When he would get lost as a young boy, he didn't like to go backwards. And if you look at the way he commanded his armies and the way he fought in the Civil War, he did not like to go into retreat. He took the initiative and moved forward. And in this, he set himself apart from most of the other generals that Lincoln was trying to promote and then fire in succession, trying to find someone like Grant that would push forward and take the initiative. His errors, in contrast to those colleagues whom you mentioned, were always those of aggressiveness. And there were errors, considerable mm-hmm. ones. They were always about pushing forward, about pursuing the enemy after victory. He was infuriated when the commanders working for him refused to, even if their troops were exhausted, he wanted people to pursue the victory, to ride after the retreating army. And, and when that didn't happen, he was just infuriated. So he wins a commission to West Point. There was awarded a commission to West Point, and he ends up traveling as a young cadet back to West Point to the military academy. What can we learn from his time there? In some ways, I think he is what you might call an accidental soldier. When his father tells him that he's going to West Point, and he relates this story in the memoirs, and his father said, I, I got you the commission. And he said, what? What commission? I don't understand. So you're going to West Point. And he said, no, I'm not. And his father said, yeah, I think you are. And and so Grant then says, well, I guess if he thought I was, then I would be going. He doesn't want to go. The young man whose spot he took had actually failed out and sort of come home in some shame. And so Grant, who's schooling, let's face it, in Ohio at the time was sort of very modest. It was okay, but not a great education. This would have been considered at the time the far west of the nation, right? The frontier. And so he was not particularly confident about his preparation. He was afraid that he wouldn't pass really the entrance exams, let alone the whole course. So he's reluctant. Mainly, he says at least he got to travel, and he did. And he goes on his first railroad, and he goes by steamship, and he's just delighted to travel and to see new places, which, as we've discussed, is something he loved to do. And then when he gets there, he really doesn't take to it. 
He's the best equestrian at the whole academy, and everybody finds that out pretty quickly. So he loves that. He doesn't love the course of studies, although he's very good at math. I think that his career at West Point, I think some people have made it worse than it really was, but it was sort of a, it was a modest career. As I said, good in math, good in horsemanship, as he himself admits, terrible in tactics. He was bored by tactics completely and not very good at it. He spends all his time, he says, reading novels. And that's the part, of course, that I, as an English professor, quite love. But he goes to the library and, they, of course, cadets would lend books to one another. One of the few surviving letters we have of that period in his life is he's writing to a publisher in Philadelphia saying, I ordered these novels, where are they? So he, his tastes were typical 19th century, a lot of Sir Walter Scott, James Fenimore Cooper, Washington Irving. He spends a tremendous amount of time doing this, as he says, most of it. But he also tells us that he read novels, but not those of a trashy sort. I like to think that this novel reading actually gave him a feel for language and for expression, which I think we see in those early letters, which are humorous and precise in detail. But then, of course, in the memoirs written later in life, that particular gift with language. And in addition to his feel for terrain, one of the other great attributes of his leadership, everyone agrees, is his ability to write a clear order, a clear dispatch. His goal in this, and maybe we'll talk more about this when we get to his experience in the Mexican War, was to put his meaning so plainly that there could be no mistaking it, which is something I love to quote for my own students who are embarking on military careers. It's a great ideal put out there as a writer, and you can see that he really delivered on that in his memoirs. They have a certain style. It's very direct. It's not ornate. Tells the story as it is in plain sentences, mostly plain vocabulary. And he obviously picked up something from all that reading. I think great writers are great readers. I recently had Andrew Roberts on to talk about Winston Churchill, and he talked about Winston Churchill's wide-ranging interest in reading and how that impacted his writing, which was also very good. Let's talk about the Mexican War, because he graduates from West Point, and he goes on to serve pretty quickly in the Mexican War, which sort of seems like a prelude to the Civil War in so many ways. Is in contact with a number of officers he'll eventually either serve with or fight against in the Civil War. But you also see him studying as a young officer, studying the leaders that he's serving and working out what he will eventually be his leadership style. And I found that really fascinating about this part of his memoirs. What can you say about that? There's a couple of generals that he is introduced to. I find the chapters on the Mexican War, there are only a few in the beginning of the book, actually among my favorite parts of the memoir, because you really do, as you've noted, you see his powers of observation, not only of nature, but of human nature. His letters of the period are actually full of descriptions of the Mexican landscape. He fell in love with the country and would go back there later. It was really a sort of spectacular place for him in terms of the setting, incongruous as it, as it was, because he was there in war. But one of the things that's so interesting to me about the memoirs are these sort of miniature portraits of his commanders in the beginning and then later on of his colleagues and subordinates. And in them, you get a really clear picture of how they performed under pressure. And he would remember their strengths and weaknesses. And he's introduced to several commanders in Mexico, notices some of their behavior under pressure in particular. And the two for whom he works, General Zachary Taylor, who later became president, of course, 
and General Winfield Scott. And their nicknames, Taylor's Old Rough and Ready and Scott's Old Fuss and Feathers, sort of suggests a little bit, I think, about their personalities. Grant has, a, at the end of the 10th chapter in the memoirs, has a lovely sort of parallel portrait of the two men. He thinks that they're both excellent commanders. He learns a lot from them, but they have two radically different styles. So Scott, whom he had first encountered when Grant was first a cadet, and Scott, who was the general in chief of the army for years and years and years, <laughs> throughout decades really throughout the 19th century, came a huge man, and Grant was a very slight man, and he saw Scott on parade for the first time, and it was this sort of dazzling display. Scott used to like to wear all of his dress uniform, and he had a big staff, and he did this in Mexico as well. He traveled with the staff. He also wrote orders, as Grant described them, with a view to how they would be read in history. And he used to like to refer to himself in the third person. And so this sort of bombastic style was not Grant's. Taylor, on the other hand, he, I think, modeled himself after Taylor. Taylor used to wear a straw hat and a farmer's suit. He didn't really like uniform. He used to sit sideways on his horse and watch the battle. He liked to see for himself as Grant would. Scott used his staff for that, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a different way of managing. And so instead of seeing through the eyes of the staff, Taylor wanted to see for himself. And that's how Grant operated as well whenever he could. The other thing about Taylor, in addition to not liking uniform and pomp and circumstance, was that he wrote and spoke clearly. He said he was no conversationalist, but on paper, and this is the first time in the memoirs we hear this phrase, he could put his meaning so plainly that there could be no mistaking it. And that phrase becomes a keynote for Grant. He will repeat it later on when he is writing the terms of surrender at Appomattox at the end of the Civil War. And I think this idea that these clear, precise orders and communications, is that would really be the most efficient way to manage, to lead became, I think, very important for Grant and something that he would use in the future. But the other thing that I love about this portrait is that even though he's poking a little fun at Scott and he knows that Scott is not his type of general, he does recognize his strengths. And I think that that's really important because in the Civil War, he is forced to work with many different people, all of whom have strengths and weaknesses, but he usually knows how to capitalize on someone's strength and just to sort of make his peace with the various flaws in their styles or in their approaches. Just to touch on the idea of Grant's ability to write clear orders, one of the delights of the memoirs is the fact that Grant just republishes the orders as they were written. At times, he will refer to, and these are the orders I gave at that point. You'll get to read Grant's orders to his subordinates or sometimes a letter to back to Washington or to President Lincoln. And it's just, it's fascinating that you get to, to kind of peek in and see that. Also to your point about being gentle on weaknesses, he doesn't seem to settle scores in his memoirs. It's not vindictive in, in any way like you sometimes see in today's political memoirs. He seems to go out of his way to point out the strengths of the people he worked with and at times gently points out weaknesses, especially when he's it's an adversary, and he uses that weakness in a way to gain an advantage. And Mexico was so important in that because, of course, he was fighting on the same side with many of those he would oppose. He filed away all those observations he had made about them, and they did come in handy later on. One other observation in Mexico that really stood out 
at one point he's watching, it might have been one of the first battles, but he's observing a line of, I think he says, over a thousand soldiers, all armed, and moving forward towards a larger Mexican army that's also armed. And they're moving towards this confrontation, and Taylor is the leader, and he observes that Taylor must feel a fearful responsibility at that point, because Grant is just a young officer. He's not really in charge of a combat brigade or anything. He's a quartermaster. And so he's more in charge of the supply and the supply lines. But yet he recognizes and is able to put himself into Taylor's shoes. And again, it's sort of a prelude because you know he's going to feel that fearful responsibility in a very, very big way. He's observing and he's learning. And I'm glad you point to that passage because that's where he goes on to say that this sort of sense of calm and responsibility is a more important quality and a much rarer quality than I think he says than physical courage or genius. And he realizes that that ability is what sustains Taylor. And I think ultimately Grant's own sense of calm and unflappable nature is one of the hallmarks of his leadership. Of course, that's not necessarily something that can be taught And I think that that's really interesting. I think there it's good fortune as much as anything else. In Mexico, that's where he figures out courage under fire isn't something you can predict, I think. He does figure out there that he is physically courageous and that he is not phased by the bullets flying by. And he doesn't really brag about that, but he realizes it as a fact about himself and it helps enormously. There's a famous moment later on after the Battle of the Wilderness in 1860 in the Civil War in 1864, and he's writing a dispatch, and an enemy shell lands in front of him. And he just looks up, and then he goes back to writing. And then some soldiers who were, I think it was from a Wisconsin regiment, who were watching this, took to saying after that, Ulysses don't scare worth a damn. And it became a real point of pride that this guy who was leading them was also really indifferent to enemy shells landing in front of him. He certainly had that temperament and discovered that in the Mexican War. And And then after the Mexican War, he goes into, feels like a midlife crisis. He's shipped off to the West Coast, which is a fairly remote place at that point, the West Coast of the United States, San Francisco, and then up coast to where I live in Oregon country. That's one of the places, but he's throughout the Pacific Northwest, but that's the place where it's really brutally isolated. Just call it a midlife crisis. I sort of think of it as the lost years. He's out there. I mean, that part of the country at the time was really rugged. I mean, it's still rugged, but it was a territory, right? The army posts were very isolated. The army was a hard-drinking army at the time in general, but there wasn't much else to do out in the Pacific Northwest, really, and the army officers were sort of celebrated for their hard drinking out there. That's where the stories that did spring up about Grant's relationship to alcohol, his alcoholism, as some have called it, sort of all those stories emerged. The other things to do in the period were hunting and fishing. And we know from other officers who did that, like George Crook, that that was great if that was your thing, but it was not Grant's thing. He hated hunting. He didn't like the sight of blood. He couldn't understand why people would kill things. I mean, it sort of seems strange in a soldier, but that's why I kind of think of him as a reluctant soldier in many ways. But he read and he was miserable. And we have his letters to his wife from that period, and he wants to resign and they're miserable. Why don't you write to me more? The mail comes only occasionally. The weather is terrible. Officers try to make some extra money doing various things. Everything he tries fails. And he tells Julia, his wife, he writes back to her and says, you know, I would resign all this except for 
poverty, poverty, poverty. That's what stares him in the face and he doesn't really know what to do. So yeah, those are absolutely miserable, sad years. He passes over them very briefly in the memoirs. This is not something he dwells on. I think for several reasons. I think they are a source of embarrassment, but I also think that he, probably rightly so, that his audience doesn't really want to hear about this necessarily and instead wants to hear about the Civil War primarily, which I think he's right about. And that's what he, I think, regards as the great story of his life is the Civil War. And so that's what he does. But yeah, it's a really unhappy period. Then he finally comes home. His wife's family's from St. Louis. He spent some time there. Again, fails at almost everything he does. Ends up before when the Civil War breaks out, he is working in uh, Galena, Illinois, in his father's leather goods store. He's a clerk in the leather goods store. This is not something that he envisioned doing. He had a kind of fraught relationship with his father, which was only made worse by the fact that when he did marry Julia, he married into a slaveholding family. And Grant's own father was an abolitionist. And this was a very representative story of the period. And it caused a great deal of, unsurprisingly, a great deal of friction. And so this was not exactly what he wanted to be doing. But then the Civil War broke out and in many sense, you know, sort of saved him in the sense that this is what he happened to be good at. You're right. He doesn't talk a lot about this period, but you do mention, I think, in a note in the memoirs that at one point he married into a slave owning family and was granted a slave, I believe, by his father-in-law, struggling with poverty at the time. And he had a young family and he had the opportunity to either sell this slave and reap the profit to help relieve his poverty or grant freedom to the slave. And he elected to grant freedom to the slave. I think it speaks to his moral courage, to his ability to live up to his values that he was raised in coming from an abolitionist family. The other thing about this part of his life that I find interesting, when you look at the arc of his life and you see the highs and the lows, he's really extreme. Sometimes when we read memoirs of great leaders, we often see the high points and we don't see the low points. I think so much of his leadership and his moral courage and being gracious to his adversaries, things like that, grew out of this experience of seeing the lows in life. I don't think he appreciated people looking down on him when he was low. And so he never seems to do that to others. And I found that also really appealed to me. I think it's admirable, I should say. You can call him many things, and he's been called many things, but cruel is not one of them. I think he did have an innate sympathy. I mean, it's sort of the same sympathy he had for animals and for human beings. Evidently, the, one of the few times he ever lost his temper during the Civil War was when he saw a teamster beating a mule or a horse. And one of his staff officers writes about this, and he's just, he's outraged, and he wants the man punished. And this is a man who never loses his cool, but when he sees this hopeless animal being abused, it awakens all his rage and frustration. Very telling. Well, let's move on to the Civil War because it is really the high point of his leadership and his career. How does he go from being a clerk in a small leather goods store in Galena, Illinois at the outbreak of the war to, in a very short time, the commanding general of the Union Army? It really is a meteoric rise, as was the case, of course, with many in the Civil War. A lot of people sort of started as captains and ended up as generals if they survived. And so you have these really young general officers, some of them in their 30s, and it's kind of a, amazing. But war, you know, has that 
flexibility sort of built in and the army of the time even more flexible in that way than today. So he starts out, he's sort of helping because he does have experience in logistics and as a quartermaster and in the regular army, he helps the governor of the state recruit troops and, and get organized and things. And he really keeps writing and he wants to have his own command and he doesn't get it. And then he finally gets one. He gets the command of a regiment. And it's a regiment that's completely unruly. And he sort of gets it into shape, even though he looks very unprepossessing and no one can quite believe he's the new commander. And he has this lovely moment where he talks about, I mentioned how bad at tactics he was at, at West Point. And he gets the same manual he has only as a party's tactics. It's sort of embarrassing to the federal army, but the author of the tactics ended up fighting for the Confederacy. So they just put a blue cover on the, you know, I mean, it was like they all use the same tactics book, but he looked at these updated tactics and he just found out that some of the commands had changed, but that it was essentially the same thing. And he's ready to march his troops around. And he realizes that the space he has available, he said they would be marching over the farmhouse next door. And so he realizes he can't do that. So he just sort of uses common sense. He was not a big stickler for, he was not a by the book kind of guy in that way. And so he didn't let it bother him. And he said, I pretty much figured it out. And he said, no one knew that I hadn't read past the first chapter of these texts. So he's not a great martinet. Many Civil War officers were. He's not a strict disciplinarian, but he does have particular priorities. And so he finds himself in command of this regiment. He ends up his first engagement. He thinks is going to be his first engagement. He's ordered to follow a Confederate colonel named Thomas Harris through Missouri. He can't find him and he's they're sort of wandering the countryside and he expects that they'll be close by and he should send out scouts but he doesn't and he keeps going and he comes to sort of the crest of a hill and he looks down below and he realizes that the camp that the confederates had just occupied has been recently vacated and he says there that he learned a valuable lesson and the lesson was that the enemy was just as afraid of him as he was of the enemy he also reveals something else there, I think, and it's this question of moral courage, which is a term you mentioned and a term that he talks about a lot in the memoirs. Sometimes he has it, sometimes he doesn't. There he doesn't, and he says so, because it's one thing to be responsible for yourself, as he largely was in the Mexican War. It's yet another to be responsible for a whole command. And so risking your own life is very different from risking that of, of others. And this is his first moment in that position, and he has to figure out you know what, you can't necessarily always lead from the front. You can't always be aggressive. You can't take certain risks when other people are depending on you, as you might if you were sort of a freelance operator, as he ended up being in the Mexican War, because as you said, he was a quartermaster, but he found his way into many battles nonetheless. So he, he sort of figures out that command is a slightly different proposition. That passage really struck me too, because I think he said at one point, I, I would have given anything to be back in Illinois at that moment too embarrassed not to just continue on. And he never goes back again, kind of like as a young boy in his travels, he just builds off of that and continues. And one of the things I noticed at this point in his career was his understanding of supply lines. He gets more and more responsibility, has more regiments that report to him. Because he knows about how armies are supplied, what I saw was he understood supply lines can be a strength and weakness for his army, but also the enemy's army and to use that to his advantage. And the campaign where he makes his name is the Vicksburg campaign. He uses that knowledge of supply lines to his advantage. Maybe you could talk about that because it's such a, I'm guessing it's a rather famous campaign in military history. Yes. Your point about his knowledge of logistics and his understanding of supply, I think is a key one. And I think Grant's biographer, Gene Edward Smith says it best. 
He says that Grant's armies, they were never the best dressed. They were never the most disciplined, but they never wanted for ammunition, for food or for clothing. This idea that he realized these are the very unromantic aspects, right? This is not leading charges. This is not sort of the really glorious or the images of war that the 19th century deemed glorious and worthy of writing about. But really, to many people, boring details, right, of figuring out how are you going to feed all of these people and how are you going to get the ammunition where it needs to be? And so Grant was really always recognized the significance of that. And that was from his quartermaster responsibilities in Mexico. Flip side of that, he's always thinking about how can I cut off my enemy's supply, using that to his advantage too. So in the Vicksburg campaign is the sort of part of the culmination of his activities in the Western theater of the Civil War. For those listeners who haven't sort of studied the Civil War in a while, you know, the two main theaters, the Eastern theater and the Western, the Eastern theater largely in Virginia, the more well-known of the two theaters of the Civil War. But the Western theater is really where Grant makes his name and spends most of the war. He doesn't get to the East until the winter of 1864. So he, as you said, he gets more and more responsibility, rises in rank, scores an important victory at Fort Donelson before Vicksburg. We have time just to talk a little bit about that battle because it's so important. The Fort Donelson is on the Tennessee, in Tennessee, in the, the Northwest part of the state among all of these rivers. And I I went out there because I don't have the grasp of terrain that Grant has. So I wanted to see as many of these battlefields as I could. And you really see the winding river country there and the importance of these strategic points in the river. And Donaldson was one of them. He cooperates with the Navy, which was, I think, another important aspect of his command. He makes use of all the resources available. And the Navy commanders are pleased to work with him that he wants to take advantage of what they have to offer. And at Donaldson, he meets up with an old friend from West Point, Simon Bolivar Buckner, someone with whom he also fought in Mexico. And he knows Buckner pretty well. And Buckner is left in command of this fort by several of his superiors who sort of run off in the night and leave Buckner holding the bag. And Grant ends up taking the fort and they have this exchange. And this is sort of really what seals Grant's fame, I think. And Buckner, who assumes that this surrender, he's really the first Confederate general who has to surrender. And he assumes it's going to work like Fort Sumter did. Fort Sumter, which opened the war, which saw the Union commander allowed by his adversary and former student, General Beauregard, allows Major Anderson out and the troops to march out of Fort Sumter with bands playing and flags and all sorts of things. And it's this sort of standard for Civil War courtesy, which is begun. Buckner expects the same sort of courtesy from Grant, and he writes him a letter saying, you know, what are the terms? And Grant writes this letter back, which is really quite wonderful. And I'll just quote it if I may. Grant says, I just got your note proposing armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation. And then Grant says, no terms except an unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. And Buckner is shocked and chagrined. And he calls this response ungenerous and unchivalrous. But he also says, I have no choice. And so Grant, whose initials are now U.S., become unconditional surrender and all the newspapers talk about it and everything else. And at the very end, when they meet in a hotel called the Dover Hotel, where you can actually still go and see the room where the two men met, Buckner said, you know, if I had been in command, you wouldn't have taken the fort the way you did. And Grant said, yeah, if you'd been in command, I wouldn't have tried the way I did. And so there's this great moment where he really knows his opposite number there. 
It's one of those strange moments. I think people tend to romanticize it as this war between brothers. And I think that's kind of distorting. But what is important is the intimacy among adversaries and the fact that they did know each other so well and who was going to be able to take advantage of that knowledge. And Grant was able to do that. And then Grant goes on, as you said, to Shiloh, which was uh, also not unalloyed victory. The Union troops there were taken by surprise, really, but Grant really turns it around. It's a two-day battle, a very bloody battle, which I think shows for a lot of people that this war is very different from the one they thought would be over in 20 minutes. And it's no more games and this sense that this is really a dire situation. And Grant says that it's from Shiloh where he realizes this is going to be a war of attrition and they would have to grind it out. So what he ends up doing now in the sort of operational level is this great sweep south to Vicksburg. Vicksburg is a commanding fort on the Mississippi River. So the river is used for so much traffic and for supplies and everything. And who owns the control of the Mississippi, it's a huge strategic advantage. So this is where, as you suggest, Grant uses supply lines to his advantage and eventually decides to live off the land. And this is where he realizes that if he eats up all the supplies, there will be no supplies for the Confederate army or for Confederate civilians. And that becomes a huge part of the strategy, right, is to wear out the Confederacy. So he ends up cutting loose from his supplies. And William T. Sherman, his friend and subordinate, writes in this note and says, you don't want to do that. And Grant says, I'm doing it. And of course, that's the strategy Sherman will use in his march through the South. But at this point, he's kind of frightened of doing this. But Grant says, this is what we're going to do. And it ends up working. And it wouldn't have been possible. It would have been so cumbersome to stretch out those supply lines. So he just decides to eat the food that is available there and and the forage and everything else. It's an amazing decision. And you get a peek into his decision process when you read the memoirs, because he talks about how it came to him. He molded over. He wasn't quite ready to commit to it. And then at some point he does. And when he does, he fully commits. And he, again, realizes that his own supply lines can be critical, but they can also be a detriment because it's tough to defend them. And you've got to draw, they they draw your soldiers out and the logistics. And when he cuts loose, he realizes he has more freedom. He can move faster. He uses everything to his advantage. And he takes a huge risk though. It could have backfired, but he was able to take risk, more risk, I'd say, than the generals that were before. So then he captures Vicksburg. Extraordinary maneuver. It's a lot of trial and error. And part of also the reason that he breaks loose from supplies, that his big supply depot in in Holly Springs, Mississippi, is raided. That sort of reinforces for him the great weakness of sort of relying on. So that's when he cuts loose. He runs the batteries. He uses naval transport to run beneath the batteries of Vicksburg and go south of the fort. The terrain was very difficult. He tried to hack his way through the swamps and nothing was working, but he kept saying it was better to keep the troops occupied than to sit there idle. To be doing something always was key for him, never to be idle. And he ends up defeating Johnston's army, which is coming from the east. And then also, I mean, everybody's saying, what are you doing? You know, you should wait for reinforcements. He says, I'm not waiting. And then he invests Vicksburg and that siege goes on for quite a long time. And then finally, the Confederates who are starving 
in Vicksburg. And there are many dramatic accounts of the life in Vicksburg at the time. Many people living in caves actually dug out to escape the shelling, eating their own animals and eating whatever really they could. And so after that, he comes back north a bit to Chattanooga, which at the time is under siege. It's a sort of remarkable moment there where many of his skills come into play. It's all new to him, but he rides in in the middle of night and sort of gets briefed by everybody and then looks at the map and then proceeds to write out the orders for the whole campaign. And he opens up the supply line because Chattanooga too was starving. This was the Union troops. It's around this time that he's called east after Chattanooga to Washington, where Lincoln realizes, after Vicksburg in particular, realizes that this is the guy for him. And there has been just a sort of cavalcade of generals who couldn't make decisions and who weren't aggressive. And there were so many of them and they wouldn't follow up their victories or they just couldn't. And again, it has to do, I think, a lot in large part with risks. They were unwilling to take risks. And I think Grant always knew that war forced to make the best of several bad decisions, right? Bad options. There was going to be a cost to every decision. And I think that's something that a lot of his fellow generals couldn't sort of bend their minds around. That no decision would be risk-free, no option would be casualty-free, but that this was sort of the grim truth of warfare. And he certainly didn't like suffering. He, In fact, he mentions at one point that the optimal strategy would be the one that would end the war as quickly as possible to alleviate all the suffering, even if that strategy required in the short term was going to cause a lot of suffering and death to his army. So he sort of recognized the big picture that we have to go through this to solve this problem once and for all. There's a point in his memoirs where he's sort of contrasted between Sherman. You mentioned Sherman. Sherman goes on to this campaign where this march to Atlanta and march to the sea where he is completely cut off from his own supply line. So Sherman sort of learns from Grant and and moves on. But Sherman, I think it was one of your annotated notes where you mentioned that Sherman himself, Grant doesn't mention this because he's too modest, but Sherman himself says, you know, I had more history of military. I have more knowledge. I've studied more tactics. I've studied more strategy, but Grant is a better leader than I am because he's able to make decisions with the information he has. And I just think that's a great lesson for all of us today because we have access to so much information. And the internet is just right there for us as we're making business decisions or investment decisions. And we can wait for perfect information or try to make a decision that has a 99% probability of success. And Grant wouldn't have waited for that. He would have moved forward and made decisions. And I think there's a lot to be said to that in, in today's environment to be successful. You can't be completely risk averse or wait for perfect information. Certainly Grant didn't. And I think we shouldn't confuse that with a notion of winging it or not preparing, but a sort of, a, of an acceptance that perfect information is an illusion, that we'll never have it, and that waiting indefinitely will only make a bad situation worse. One other story from this part of the war that touched me was, I think it was after Shiloh, but Grant was trying to get some rest at the end of the battle and was tired and it was rainy. And he decides to go into a field hospital to try to get warm and to rest. And there's so much suffering there that right. he can't take it. And you can see that at times he lets his guard down a little bit. Because when you read his memoirs, you can come across a little cold 
hearted at times because he'll say 800 killed in that battle or 5,000 or, and it's just a number. But at some point he does sort of open up and say this, he was so touched by that he had to remove himself and go sleep under a tree. He has some words of sympathy for his soldiers. He goes into this makeshift hospital, this cabin. And I mean, and you can imagine what civil war medicine was like. In fact, I include in the edition, I include some illustrations from the history of the Civil War surgeons and the instruments with which they had to work were fairly primitive and the anesthesia was nil, pretty much. So you could have just imagined the screams and the blood and the piles of, I mean, they were just amputations were the sort of signature operation of the war. And so you can imagine it looked like a slaughterhouse. It probably looked very much like the tanneries that Grant hated so much as a child. And it's pouring rain. His ankle is, is injured from a fall that he had taken from his horse. And he's just sitting out there under a tree in the rain because he could not endure the field hospital. Sherman actually writes about that in a newspaper article decades later. And that's where that famous exchange that comes from Sherman, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it, it sounds good where Sherman after the first day And it is consistent with Sherman's account of Grant's ability to make decisions, even though Sherman was a much better student of military history. So Sherman says he finds him in the rain there sitting with his slouched hat and his cigar under a tree. And Sherman said, well, Grant, you know, we've had the devil's own day because the first day at Shiloh was pretty bleak. And Grant just sort of looks up and says, yeah, lick him tomorrow, though. And of course, that's what they do. And so this, you know, that great sort of signature moment between the two that Sherman does recount later on in life. The other moment that I think is really important and that gives a window onto Grant's humanity, also from Shiloh, is where the Union soldiers on the first day at Shiloh were accused of cowardice by their commanders. And Grant is irate about that because he suggests that a lot of these troops were green. They had never been in battle before. And he said, you know, the first impulse is to run away. And that's a human impulse. And who could be blamed for that? And so instead, he blames their officers for not maintaining order. And he also says that he never levels the charge of cowardice lightly. It's only a few people in the memoirs who get accused of being cowards. But he wants to rescue the reputation of his army there. And that's not for self-aggrandizing purposes, because many of the soldiers had retreated to the banks of the river. They were sort of cowering under the riverbank. And he says that it's because they lacked organization and leadership, and they were not cowards. And these were the same soldiers who would go on to perform valiant in later encounters. But that's another moment, I think, where his understanding and sympathy for his troops is manifest. So after the success of Vicksburg and Chattanooga, Grant is invited back to Washington to be sworn in as commanding general of the Union armies and the federal armies. And he meets President Lincoln for the first time. And one of the portraits, there's a few portraits in this memoir that I really enjoyed the relationship between Grant and Sherman. Another one is the relationship between Grant and Lincoln. And the third, I think, for me, was the relationship between Grant and Lee, which we're about to get into. Lee is, of course, the commanding general of the Confederate Army. One thing he hears from the officers in D.C. when he arrives, he's sort of this, you know, fresh off his victories in the West, and now he's coming to the Eastern Theater, and he's never met Bobby Lee before. He's never had to fight against Bobby Lee and I've never heard Robert Lee referred to as Bobby Lee, but I'm sure they knew him so well, right? It's kind of funny, but it's obvious that he realizes that people still don't fully trust him or believe in his ability, even though he believed in his own ability. And it's a reminder that if you put yourself in Grant's shoes at that time, you don't really know how the Civil War is going to turn out. We know now, 
but he really needed to have that confidence and he had to push through doubters. And it's something that we all have to do as leaders to overcome our own self-doubt or maybe others to achieve our vision. And he certainly did that. I think Lee had acquired by this time such an aura and that he was sort of superhuman. And Grant, that was never sort of Grant's approach to life, to things. And so he hears that, I think, in several places. One of them is around the time of the Battle of the Wilderness. He said, this is Lee. And essentially, I mean, his response is, this guy, he's a man like anyone else, essentially. And he doesn't feel intimidated in that way. I think he does have that. And that's the other thing that Sherman realizes about Grant. He has this confidence that is contagious. And Sherman, who was a much more volatile personality, I think gained a lot of confidence from knowing that Grant believed in him and believed in his troops. And so I think that that was a hugely important. And again, I'm not sure whether that is teachable. I think if you have it, it can be enhanced and fostered. But I think there again, it was sort of being the right person in the right place. One place he does mention that he believes part of his confidence comes from the fact that he never petitions for a commission. He has a sort of uh, superstition or something that he did not say, when am I going to get the generalship? Someone look at me. It's time for me to be promoted. Because someone on his staff, well, I think he mentions, boy, I really wish I could lead a brigade in the cavalry in the Army of the Potomac, which was the army on the east. And I think he was at the west at the time. And someone says, well, why don't you just write a letter? And he said, I'd rather cut my right arm off. He believes that Confidence comes from someone being confident in you. If you do your duty when you're ready, things will open up. And it certainly worked out that way for him. I thought that right. was kind of interesting. And I think that he had a kind of fatalism about it. And I think also he doesn't write about this. You know, he had some champions, Elihu Washburn and some other politicians. He had a lot of enemies, but he had some on his side. And I think he knew how to, let's say, make the most of those relationships. But I also think that he was, I mean, certainly in the West after Shiloh, he was almost ready to resign because he had been sort of shunted off to a job that he didn't really command anything. So this sort of strange period in the wilderness there. But I do think that he did have this kind of sense that will come to me if I continue to do my job to win this battle, do this particular thing, and then whatever will follow. Because I think you, you can be paralyzed by looking too far ahead as well, right? I mean, you want to take the long view, but you also can't neglect the task at hand. I think that was important to him to maintain that, that balance. So Lincoln elevates Grant to the commanding general of the Union Army, and Grant proceeds to design the strategy, the final campaign, really, of the war. So talk about that, and it leads to that famous battle of the wilderness and eventually the surrender at Appomattox. So what can we take away from this incredible campaign? He succeeds at the tactical level, at Donaldson, at Shiloh. He succeeds at the operational level at Vicksburg. And then he has to take into account the entire theater of war. And he makes a couple of decisions that are key. One of them is George Meade is the commander of the Army of the Potomac when Grant comes east. And Meade fully expects to be relieved. And Grant decides not to do that, instead to leave him in place as the commander of the Army of the Potomac, thus giving him all of the sort of executive and administrative responsibilities freeing Grant to think about the big picture and not to worry about the day-to-day operations of the Army of the Potomac, which is a huge job in and of itself. So giving Meade this job, keeping him there, and then thinking about the whole picture. And he takes this time and he studies it 
he studies terrain and he works out how he's going to accomplish this. And then the first big test is the Battle of the Wilderness, which is complicated by the terrain. It's aptly named. It takes place in the woods. The woods catch fire. It's very dry. They catch fire. It is a battle, one of Grant's staff officers says, fought more by the ear than the eye because you can't see through all the smoke and the flames. It's a battle of horrific suffering. Wounded men are burning up out in the woods. Grant is sitting and you can still go there. If you go to the historic site now, you can still see this sort of tree where he had his headquarters there, this little clearing. And he would receive all these reports from panicked officers all over the battlefield. And they would bring him these reports and he would essentially tell them to calm down. And he would sift exaggeration from the facts from the exaggeration. And he displayed, as usual, this sort of extraordinary calm. The wilderness is sort of a draw, really, but the key comes after because every general up to that point, after encountering Lee, had turned north again. And Grant says, we're going to cross the river. We're going to keep going south. And that's the moment where the whole army sort of realizes that it's not business as usual, but that it's we're going to keep going south. We're not going to give up. And this is a pretty magnificent army, right, that has been well-trained and outfitted, and now it's going to continue the fight. And so when they turn south, it sort of breathes new life into this army. And there are several accounts of officers and others in their diaries who write about this change, and they realized with Grant they were dealing with someone different. And so he's able to infuse this confidence into an entire army, all the while delegating the command of that army to Meade and trying not to interfere. There's a great case study there in delegation throughout the Eastern theater. Sometimes you could argue he delegates too much because there are a lot of generals who don't get along with one another and make bad decisions because of their rivalries. But he has a kind of principle of letting, as he says, the man on the spot make the decision because the man on the spot is the one who knows best the situation. And so he maintains that as a principle. And it's not always to the good, but I think in the main it is. I think you're exactly right about the the momentum shift at the end of the Battle of the Wilderness when Grant decides to proceed on. He seems to understand sort of morale, esprit de corps, momentum. The Confederates seem to have had that little edge before, and it sort of shifts there with Grant's leadership. And now he just keeps pushing south and trying to flank, flank, flank Robert E. Lee's army. And it's really fascinating. It takes a while. It's another, what, eight months or something, but he just keeps going. Meanwhile, he's managing the entire theater, as you mentioned, but he just keeps moving towards Richmond. And eventually we get to the point where Lee is sort of surrounded and we get this famous meeting at the courthouse Appomattox. So maybe you could set the stage there because I think this is really the culmination of his leadership comes all together here at this pivotal moment in our nation's history too. The spring of April 65, and he sent some notes to Lee, and then finally Lee responds saying, yes, they had better meet. So they end up meeting in Appomattox and in the, a man named McLean, his house. So Lee evidently says he would rather die a thousand deaths than surrender to Grant, but he realizes the situation is impossible. And it's taken him a long time to, I think, accept that. So they meet, they are totally different men, 
totally different soldiers. And Grant tells the story, and I think he takes a little pride in it. You know, he describes Lee as faultless in form, six feet, over six feet tall. Grant's a small guy. He's in, he's faultless. He's wearing his uniform. He looks really good. And he said, I didn't even have time to change. I was in the clothes I was riding in. I didn't have a sword because I didn't carry a sword. Who needs a sword, right? That kind of thing, right? He's in his traveling clothes. So he's probably mud-stained and he looks kind of rumpled as he often did. And he shows up and he says that the contrast must have been very great. And I think there's a little pride in that, a lot of pride in that actually. And they meet, and of course, Lee had been an engineer officer. And in Mexico, he had done really great engineering work. And Grant had benefited from that, and he knew his reputation. He was chief of engineers for General Scott. And so he knew of Lee, and maybe they had met in the past, and Lee supposedly didn't really you know, remember Grant. So Grant remembered Lee, and I think he knew something about the way Lee's mind worked. And he also encountered his old friend, James Longstreet, who had been one of his best friends at West Point. He was there as well, and other people he knew. And, you know, he mentions they all chatted with one another, and they were like sort of a weird reunion, right, after this war. But it's kind of, I think, a frosty meeting, quite frankly. There's no real sympathy between the two. They're such different characters. And Grant there again says, you know, he's never never vindictive, but he also knows, and he's not at all confused about the nature of the war and about the fact that this was a war of principle. He also knows that if Lee surrenders and disbands his army, that the Confederacy will follow, that the Confederacy really stands and falls with Lee. So he, instead of offering the unconditional terms that he did Buckner, he decides to let the troops go, the officers can go with their sidearms, which was a big deal for them. And also they can take any animals with them, you know, and he expects that they'll go back and farm and resume the arts of peace. And so they have these terms, Lee surrenders, and Throughout this great chapter on the, the surrendered Appomattox, Grant proceeds to demythologize. So there's a myth about an apple tree, that the surrender takes place under an apple tree. He says that's a myth. But he said, you know, with war stories, people tell them enough that fiction becomes fact. But this didn't happen. And he also says the surrender of the sword, which Southern newspapers made a big deal about after. He said, the whole story of Lee handing me his sword and my handing it back, it's all nonsense. It's all a fabrication. Here's what really happened. I think this is important because it really sums up the quality of the memoirs, that unlike most 19th century accounts of war, this war in particular, Grant's is not romantic. It is not a celebration of the glories of warfare, of the glories of combat. It is instead an account of what is a very brutal business and an often grim business, and Grant knew that business as well as anyone. So I think that's very important. The other thing that he does here is that he makes very clear that the causes, as would happen later the way we remember the war, the causes sort of became equalized and it just became this contest between brothers, as I've said, and that everyone was reconciled afterwards and it's as if it never happened. Grant was never confused about that. And he said, you know, that his adversaries were fighting for slavery and whatever else they may have believed and wanted, that this was what they were defending. And that he says this was one of the worst causes for which anyone ever fought and one for which there was the least excuse. I think that that's important, that he realized in ending this war that this would have huge implications for the future of the nation. I think that's a really important point. And you mentioned, I I believe in one of your notes, that he seemed to have believe in the sincerity of 
the Confederate soldiers' courage, suffering, and so forth, but also firmly believed in the unjustness of the cause. And he has a hint at the end of his memoirs, a foreshadowing for our country and for what we're dealing with today, where he says something like, we may experience some conflict between the races again in our future. He seemed to understand at this point he'd been through Reconstruction. We don't get his views of that in the memoirs, really, but he had seen, and I assume tried to make some changes in the South, tried to lay the foundation for the equality of the races and really achieving Jefferson's vision of all men are created equal, but he failed in that eventually, and the country failed in that, and we're, we're sort of dealing with that today. You see it now as a missed opportunity if, if the leadership could have pushed it all the way across, but there was, had been so much suffering. You can see the reasons why they didn't make it, but you can also see the consequences of the fact that they didn't quite get to the ultimate goal they wanted to achieve. And that's just what happened. And we're, we're sort of still dealing with that in many ways. Throughout his administration, he worked hard to enforce Reconstruction. He worked hard for the constitutional amendments that tried to secure civil rights for freed African-Americans. But by the end, the scandals throughout his second term in office, I think, weakened the credibility of his administration making reconstruction efforts even harder. And then in the compromise that was worked out after his second term, which ensured that the Republican Party would maintain the White House, the agreement really was to withdraw federal troops. And I think the North's moral will and was exhausted. And then we plunged the South back into a period, the legacies of which we still see today. So I do think, you know, at the end, he had to recognize that as a great failure as well. Well, Grant's life is such an amazing story. There's so much we can take away from how he composed himself, his temperament, his ability to stay calm under pressure, his ability to delegate, his ability to understand his own strengths and weaknesses and design strategies that took advantage of his enemy's strengths and weaknesses and live a complete life, the highs and the lows. So I really appreciate what you've done. It's an incredible achievement, the annotated memoirs, and I hope those in the audience can enjoy them as well. Where can people find out more about you, Elizabeth, and what you're doing? I'm working right now. You know, I've been talking a lot about Grant, so there's a lot of podcasts and, and also some other things. was part of History Channel's miniseries, the docudrama on Grant. So that's a great way to find out, I think, more about him. And then in terms of future projects, I'm doing some stuff on World War II right now and also on Alexander the Great. So those are my two current projects. Well, I hope to have you back again sometime in the future. You've been a wonderful guest, and thank you for your second time appearing on The Good Life. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.